Hey y'all, I'm Ryan. And I'm Nancy. And this is Side T, where we bring you engaging conversations between researchers and practitioners. We feature leading experts as well as early career researchers in psychology and beyond, who will be speaking with other professionals working in settings such as hospitals, schools, and governmental agencies. So grab your tea or drink of choice and enjoy the conversation. Welcome to SciT today, and I'm so excited to start off by introducing my good friend, um, Andy Godfrey. And Donald Andy Godfrey is a instructor and graduate student at the University of Houston. He studies social behavioral neuroscience and teaches in the psychology department. And a lot of his research focuses on family conflict or violence and the effect that it has on psychological development. And Mr. Godfrey has also spent time as a lab manager for the Personality, Emotion, Brain, and Behavior Lab at the University of Utah. And he has also done research on the different factors that contribute to maladaptive behavior, including various forms of abuse. And he's also interested in individuals' empathetic responses. And he was a huge help to me when I was writing my very first ever grant and really interested in his work. So I just appreciate him as a human and as someone who's on the episode today. So welcome, Andy. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Right. And I would like to introduce our other guest, Dr. Debbie Easterling. She is currently a grant writer at my sister's house uh, located in Charleston, South Carolina. This is a domestic violence agency providing extensive services, advocacy, and education around of interpersonal violence. Um, Debbie is also a volunteer board member for this agency's crisis line and a court advocacy sec sectors. Debbie has earned her PhD in business administration at Louisiana State University. She was a professor, uh, associate dean, and chair of the management and marketing department at Salisbury University. But before that, um, she was my colleague at Bryant University. We started the same year at Bryant after we got our doctorate degrees. And this is where we um, first became fast friends. And I am so grateful that our friendship has continued and grown ever since. Welcome, Debbie. Thank you. I'm really pumped that we get to talk about some of Andy's research today. So the specific study that we're looking at, Andy and his colleagues examined the relationship between emotional abuse and post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD and how specific facets of emotional abuse may relate to PTSD symptom severity for women who have experienced trauma. And so specifically, they were interested in looking at how these dynamics unfold within couples, and they recruited 141 couples with trauma-exposed women who completed self-reports of physical and emotional victimization and perpetration in their current relationship and reported on their own PTSD symptom severity. And so they found overall that about 15% of the variance in PTSD symptom severity was due to emotional abuse, as well as some more nuanced findings around the specific components of emotional abuse that we'll talk through in this conversation. There are a lot of big picture implications from this study, and I'm excited to talk about all of them, but I definitely want to make sure, and Nancy and I want to make sure that y'all feel free to ask each other questions. Um, but first, Andy, I just wanted to see, can you tell us sort of your biggest takeaway from doing this kind of work that you've been doing throughout grad school? I really started started to zone in on some of the specific behaviors um, that we see in emotional abuse um, and really kind of opening up the depth of what intimate partner violence looks like. Uh, because obviously when we think of intimate partner violence, domestic abuse, we think of um, really intense physical 
uh, acts against intimate partners, which is absolutely true. It's part of it. Um, but there's a lot of depth to what that can look like from relationship to relationship mm-hmm. as far as the context in which this aggression is happening. Uh, so looking at these different aspects of emotional abuse gives us a lot of a lot more information to work with uh, as uh, regarding you know the specific environment, what's being said, what kind of actual emotions are being put on um, to this abuse. Um, so the more specific we can get with it when we're seeing uh, emotional abuse, the better. And we'll talk a bit more about that, what that exactly means. Um, but you just get a lot more information when we start looking at these specific um, kind of dynamics between partners as opposed to kind of broadly talking about uh, abuse in a very specific way. Well, I'm going to, um, before I, I jump in with a question for Debbie, I just want to follow up a little bit on that, um, Andy, because that is looking at um, some of this paper and some of your other work. I just think that what you and your colleagues are doing, are it's incredibly ambitious and um, really important, of course. And one of like my most, like a, the basic level, I just try to imagine how do you, you know, getting people to come in, because I know you're having people do not just self-reports, but there is sort of a, a behavioral component that you're observing with um, um, individuals in, in couples together in a conflict kind of discussion. And that this paper was based on a, a study based on a larger project and just logistics, um, uh, you know, of how do you, um, how do you, make room for people to to feel that they can actually do something like this. And I know there are some limitations that uh, about safety issues to that some people are not included if it's not safe for them to be included. Can you speak a little bit about how you um, who the people are that you do collect data from? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll start with that. So one thing about, you know, our collecting data and recruiting individuals for our samples is that there's really no like uh, special tricks or kind of like uh, uh, nuances to it because IPV is actually very common, uh, especially when we start talking about these specific emotional abuse um, dimensions. Um, there's studies showing there's a 12 month prevalence rate of um, around over 10% for both men and women who've experienced emotional abuse in the last 12 months. So it's really just the community and um, recruiting individuals who are experiencing a lot of conflict within their relationship. Yes, not everybody meets criteria for our studies, but we find that um, you know our samples are more than uh, we're able to get those samples without any problems because it's just so prevalent. And even speaking to kind of like the severe end of that, um, you know, severe physical violence is still more than people realize. Um, I think the 12-month prevalence rate is somewhere around two to three percent. But that's still relatively large in terms of clinical, um, you know, studies and um, relative to if you were doing uh, an experiment with or a study on other populations um, with psychopathology, that two to three percent is actually a decently high number as far as getting that recruitment level. So there's not a lot of tricks mm-hmm. to it because it, it is it is very common. Again, especially when you start talking about specifically emotional abuse. Um, and as far as safety goes, that, that is an important thing. Um, but there's actually interesting studies showing that uh, when we do conduct studies with IPV that include couples, uh, people have tend to felt safe doing so. Um, they felt to have 
found in the relationships that it's beneficial to the relationships in in some way. Um, so, and of course, there are safety measures, making sure that at the end of the study, that individuals feel safe to go home, whether they feel that their interactions during the experiments have caused some kind of increased conflict and risk for any kind of aggression. Um, but with my lab that I'm currently with, Dr. Babcock at the University of Houston, throughout her 30 years of having these studies, she's never had a single incident in which she's had to activate those certain protocols to make sure that people are safe because it's generally, it doesn't happen um, despite having those safeguards to protect uh, participants. Wow, that's fascinating. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's there's a lot in there, what, what you said. And on, on the one hand, I think it's, you know, it's, sad that the prevalence rates are so high. Um, I'm maybe shocked by it, probably Debbie won't be, but but on the other hand, the fact that people who come in are already maybe feeling some benefit by being a participant, to me, that's very powerful. So um, that's, that's really powerful. Um, I, I'm just gonna shift gears a little bit and, um, turn our attention over to our Debbie Easterling and ask you a little bit about um, my sister's house and the work that you do and the work that is being done there. Um, if you can fill us in a little bit about that. Yes, um, the work that I do is um, grant writing. So related to fundraising, I write uh, government grants, um, foundation grants um, to corporations, um, local municipalities. Um, I'm not um, in development. Um, So my background in academia, writing papers and doing research has really um, benefited me in the work that I'm doing now. Um, Prior to this, I have been a volunteer on the crisis line and I remain as a backup crisis line uh, counselor. I've um, also done work in the court system. Um, So we at the agency, we see women that, um, we see predominantly women that have um, left the abuser. Um, We have a clinical therapy program for the community where uh, we have over um, 1,200 participants now in that program. And that occurs on Zoom. And um, as long as women have uh, access to the internet, they can participate with that. But in our sheltering, um, we see women that are um, high lethality cases. So women come in um, actually injured with um, broken jaws, with burns, with black eyes, with broken bones, with um, disabilities from the physical abuse. And physical abuse generally never occurs in the absence of emotional abuse, financial abuse, and um, isolation. So typically it's gone on for some time um, when it comes into um, the agency, into the shelter with their children. Um, just to give you an idea of the agency, we typically have um, close to 400 individuals each year, um, sheltering individuals, and um, 
we currently now have had to close our shelter due, due to the pandemic. South Carolina has a um, really high percentage of unvaccinated individuals and our shelter is closed. We've been closed and open over the past year, but um, we, when that happens, we have to shelter our women in hotel rooms. So to give you an idea of that, we have approximately 15 rooms now. Um, some mothers have up to three children, ranging from 14 years down to six months. We have several women that have newborn infants um, in the hotel rooms. We have some uh, Spanish-speaking individuals, and we currently don't have a bilingual staff member. So we are relying on volunteers um, to help them. So you can just imagine um, school situations for the children, how disruptive and um, unsettling it is. And um, most of the children, back to Andy's work, um, where he talked about four different dimensions that would lead four different uh, behaviors or phenomena that would lead to PTSD, denigration, um, many of these children have experienced that intimidation. They've experienced that. They've experienced uh, emotional isolation as well. So that is one of our biggest concerns, our children. Absolutely. And I, I think that that is really inspiring to me, the kind of work that you're doing from that academic background now, um, and just, just applying that grant, those like grant writing skills to that area is, is awesome. And, and I'm just wondering sort of in, in your work, um, around domestic violence, if you've come across or just realized sort of general myths that we have around domestic violence and maybe who it, who it happens to, or the circumstances or what it looks like. Um, if you've run into any of those that really stand out in your mind by any chance. The predominant one is, um, the thought, um, well, a woman could just leave. That is the number one. Why does she stay? Why doesn't she just leave? Um, we had, uh, I'll just give you a quick example. We, typically have an annual luncheon where we're able to have a great guest speaker, someone who's written a book um, about domestic violence and their experiences. And we had, a, it was really a high ticket price a couple of years ago. So we had a number of very um, participants. They were literally shocked that domestic violence happens to anyone that looks like us. They, that's a myth that it only happens to certain individuals and that if a woman wanted to leave that she had, she could, why does she stay? So there are lots of, um, there are lots of misconceptions really um, around domestic violence, but we, I have had a woman on the crisis line who was being strangled to death um, in in a uh, serial strangulation that would ultimately result in her death. She um, could barely speak. Her vocal cords had been damaged and she lived in absolutely the most affluent area of Charleston, South Carolina in a mansion, but was so isolated and had no access to resources or to other people that um, she is my prime example of um how that misconception is just not accurate. Oh, thank you for sharing that. Um, difficult, 
realities and truth. And there was a lot in there that you said, Debbie. Um, one thing that I'd like to maybe connect it a little bit to with Andy's um, work and descriptions of these different domains of emotional abuse in particular, this idea of isolation um, and, you know, how powerful that can be. Like you're, you know, I can imagine that woman being so isolated despite the fact that she of her living circumstances and there was you know definitely some important um associations to that isolation and i and maybe we can spend some time talking about it in the um both the research realm and also experienced lives um andy i did um when you hear when you hear this kind of story i know it's not uh, unfamiliar to you because of who you're working with. Um, and when, can you maybe talk a little bit more about this particular, or you can talk about other parts of emotional abuse, the different factors, but you know, how does this play out in uh, the couples that you are uh, studying? Yeah, uh, well, specifically in regards to this uh, study, we can actually look at kind of the weights that these different emotional abuse has uh, as far as their associations with PTSD symptom severity. And what's been shown, not just in this study, but then in other studies as well, is that, that re uh, the restricted engulfment, this idea of cutting individuals off from social ties and other resources, it tends to be the biggest influence, even beyond physical abuse. If we look at what we call the uh, partial correlation in the study, that partial correlation, which is the strength between uh, the emotional abuse and PTSD, it's strongest for restricted engulfment, even relative to physical abuse. So I mean, it backs up, you know, exactly what Dr. Easterling is saying is that, that the isolation plays one of the biggest roles in, in outcomes related to, you know, psychological well-being. Um, so it's absolutely congruent with that. I also, oh, go ahead. You go ahead. Go, go Debbie. Um, about that is, do you think that um, the strength of that association is um, can be explained by just the longevity of isolation. So over time, I mean, year in and year out, um, it is experienced. Whereas physical violence, let's say, um, conversely, there may be several peak incidents, um, and it's and they almost seem like uh, an aberration. Um, to a woman, like, oh, I don't know how that happened. He just really flew off the handle or whatever. They they sort of can explain them away or do explain them away. So is that a valid interpretation of the results? Yeah, you know, one of the reasons that I kind of look more into the emotional abuse aspect of it is that there's more like chronicness of the emotional abuse. It's not just like a single incident right. like you're talking about. This is their day-to-day -day interactions, how they're... Um, really like communicating with each other and forming their interpersonal environment. Um, I actually had this conversation with my advisor, Dr. Babcock, about how, um, you know, it's interesting that emotional abuse is just as strong of an influence or association with PTSD and physical abuse. And, you know, she agrees. She said something um, in the conversation similar to what you're saying is that, you know, when somebody gets hit, they can kind of associate it really with anything like, oh, you know, like they're having a bad day or they're a jerk, you know, but when the emotional abuse is chronically at play, it starts to have more context or 
it gives interpretation to the pain, I guess, in the sense of it starts to build this idea of this is my fault. You know, this is, yes. I'm doing something about this. It puts more, again, context to that emotion, to the pain. And, and again, with like, if you were hit, you could just kind of uh, blame it on their things or the other person. But the mm-hmm. emotional abuse likely getting in on something more. Uh, I talk about this a little bit in the paper of uh, what we call schemas or cognitions of essentially how you view yourself and how you view the world um, when you're constantly surrounded by individuals who are denigrating you. And especially if you're cut out from other individuals who could give you other feedback otherwise that, you know, you're not an awful person, that this isn't your fault. Cutting off that social ties is just going to kind of isolate you more to this environment that's telling you uh, that's going to internalize the experience towards you as opposed to putting right. it some blame. Um, and there is some research showing that uh, I think it's um, beliefs of guilt or fear um, kind of mediate that association, meaning it causes that, uh, it explains some of that variance between emotional abuse and, and uh, um, PTSD. So there is some work on it. It definitely is something to be looked into further of why this exactly has this effect, but I think what you're talking about um, absolutely is um, related to kind of, I guess, that mediating factor between mm-hmm. uh, emotional and negative outcomes. Yes. You're bringing this concept of a sort of acute versus more chronic episodes, not that the physical abuse can't be chronic, but it it also brings up how, just how hard it would be like to measure everything, like everything everything you want to measure. You know, I know that you in your studies um, collect a lot of data, different kinds of data. And um, it just, this conversation just speaks to the challenge of trying to get, even when you have a measure, you're measuring a frequency. Do we also get how long, you know, you, I think it's like in the last year, maybe a measure, but has this been going on longer? Um, I just, it's very complex. And I, you know, I give you and your colleagues a lot of credit for um, coming up with the best design that is possible without wearing out your, your participants. Another thing that also comes uh, to mind in this conversation, and I'm kind of forgetting my thoughts. (laughs) Um, Happens to to us all. There's just so much in there. Um, you know, just has just this idea of the, I mean, if I can go back to isolation again, I feel like that, um, you know, Debbie is describing people that may, you know, that are in these extreme situations with isolation and Andy is studying the people. And I wonder how much the people that Debbie is seeing is overlapping with the population that Andy is seeing and they're related, right? To me, you know, they're, they're, they're not in completely different categories, but I'm wondering if they're in different phases or stages or, or something like that. And I don't know if we could, you know, answer that question, but would it matter um, Mm -hmm. if they were? I think it would matter. And I, I wanted to ask Andy about that as well. So for, I wanted to ask his opinion, actually, whether prolonged isolation and um, emotional abuse does lead to physical abuse. I can't see that. um, I I would suspect that physical abuse 
is um, that something has come before the physical abuse in general. Couples don't usually start out engaging in that kind of behavior with each other. So I think that would be an interesting phenomenon to look at. Obviously, I don't think that you could predict a certain time period, but how, how do you see them related? I mean, there's absolutely data on uh, psychological aggression, uh, emotional abuse, uh, longitudinally um, going, becoming more physical um, over time. So that, that absolutely is there. And, and there's a lot of complexity to that um, and still like less research on it because it does require longitudinal data designs. Which right. is, uh, it's just a lot more work than just getting a bunch, a single day assessment, right? It's, it looks mm-hmm. on requiring people to do stuff over uh, years. Um, there is a really interesting paper um, by a, a researcher up in the Northeast, uh, Dr. Uh, Kenneth Leonard, I believe, showing that uh, a lot of times uh, abuse does start off kind of more unidirectional and it turns into more bi-directional over time. Um, I think early on in marriages, there was more direction of violence of men towards women, but that turned into more bi-directional. And it really makes it difficult to talk about it because we know Self-defense violence is absolutely a thing um, when we're talking about IPV and these changes over time and how that is it just like self-defense based. Um, obviously, you know, a large chunk of it is right. Um, but I guess I guess the, the bottom line is that it's really difficult to I guess know at this point. But we know that there are changes in time. But even if we know the changes in time, what is the context of that aggression? Uh, mm-hmm. that we're perpetrating, you know, is it actually some kind of, um, are they actually becoming more aggressive within of themselves or are they learning that aggressive aggression is the safest reaction to aggression to defend, you know, it's just, it's just hard to understand what that dynamic could even mean. Uh, so mm-hmm. I guess we don't know yet, or I don't, not least the literature that I've reviewed has those answers, but to say the least that it, it is, it's a bit difficult to understand. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm really grateful that you uh, am I cutting you off, Debbie? Do you want to jump in? Because I can come no. back. No, no, go ahead. Okay. I'm so grateful that you brought this up, Andy, because I have to say that even though I haven't read a lot in this literature, it's a topic of interest of mine, and I've done some of my own advocacy and fundraising years ago, actually with Debbie um, as my mentor, um, but. In the paper, I I paused as you were getting into talking about the, you know, sort of this bilateral contribution to abusive um, emotional abuse. And I paused and I was like, wow, okay. And I just sort of let it sink in. I'm like, okay, well, I'll go back and and get in and read it. And, um, and, And I can't close my eyes to it. I try to understand it. And also um, th- what you also mentioned a minute ago is when someone um, uh, um, is not just a victim, but perpetrates some emotional abuse to their partner, that that has some paradoxical consequences. And um, and I just, you know, I'm like, that's so fascinating, but I don't know what to do with it. Usually a study of findings to me, it seems like there's a, 
a clear message or like what will we tell people? What can they do? And and these findings are um, really um, hard for me to know. You know what what can we do with it? Like what does what is the message we want to get? You know take from the findings that are are we can't ignore. Yeah, I think the complexity is one of the first important findings is acknowledging that abuse looks different across settings and different relationships and acknowledging that these different behaviors and whether it's physical abuse or emotional abuse, all are nuances that are important to consider when thinking about, I guess, risk for uh, that. As a clinician, um, I, I do uh, I, a lot of couples therapy and when you're working with clients, um, you, you are making evaluations on the risks of certain behaviors. And so I do think there are a lot of nuances to take into um, account. And we can talk about like the specific findings that are relevant for each specific one. Um, but essentially in this paper, uh, we, we did want to look into the nuances about whether the associations between emotional abuse and PTSD symptom severity varied between you know, unidirectional violence, which is what most people think of, uh, where there's a single perpetrator and a single victim, and this bi-directional violence, which um, you know is a little less talked about, um, but understanding how that might vary, and more importantly, whether it doesn't vary, is also very important. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of barriers there. But specifically, um, I guess the most important non-finding I think is that um, the effects didn't vary for restrictive engulfment and physical abuse. So it doesn't matter if you are. Um, also engaging in some kind of level of aggression back. It doesn't matter um, if you uh, aren't. These effects are consistent across those those dynamics, which I think is an important takeaway. And um, you know, to not get caught up in the complexities that restrictive engulfment, that isolating behavior, and the physical abuse were consistent across everybody. Really, we didn't really start to get into more nuances until we started looking at. Um, some of the other papers like denigration and um, hostile withdrawal, um, which do have some more nuances to what that means um, in regards to the association between emotion regu- sorry, uh, emotional abuse and uh, um, PTSD. We can go into the James Gross model of emotion regulation stuff if you want. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> well, it, it also just what Debbie was saying earlier too, just around like sort of the myth of, of like, why don't people leave? And I was just wondering, and I, I have no evidence that y- y'all's lab does this, but it just makes me wonder if you have any, if any of the studies sort of measure, like f- have any follow-ups in terms of if people stay in those relationships. And I, I, I totally understand why like the longitudinal piece is really difficult, but even just like the piece of like, do people, did these couples stay together for like a year. If, I was just curious if any of y'all studies, like if you end up going back to those couples to see. Um, nothing comes to my mind and, immediately. And that's of so anything. Ah, that's that totally be. okay. It, it, that's just interesting <laughs> to me too, because it, it makes me just wonder sort of, sort of what do these people's relationships, like you're saying, like the dynamics sort of over time are really fascinating of of just how these these dynamics could play out in different people's relationships and if people do stay and how long if it's these different components of emotional abuse and just how long these these pieces are coming um or, or people are experiencing these different components all right um the only literature that oh go ahead doctor another question <laughs> while you're 
answering the answer to that one. I was curious about the demographics even of your study, um, how long couples have been together that sort of plays into what Ryan was asking about and um, and whether you found differences between um, different um, ethnic backgrounds or and whether you had any LGBTQ couples or um, how I know you would have to have a really large sample to really um, investigate the differences between couples, but I was curious about that also. Yeah, um, we, we do uh, look at those possible control uh, covariates things to control for. And um, in this study uh, in particular, none of those played a role. Um, we always do like a preliminary analysis to see if we should control for uh, differential levels of age or um, differences across uh, race or socioeconomic. Um, we did look into that and the PTSD wasn't related to any of those things. So that's like mm -hmm. the important thing is that, is it related to the outcome variable? Um, we can test if, if there's differential uh, effects across those, um, but um, like you were saying, it does require a larger sample size that we didn't mm -hmm. have for this study. But in regards to actual generalizability of these findings is that our sample was um, fairly, it wasn't just a white sample, which is what you tend to see mostly. Yeah. Uh, if anything, it was um, actually um, quite um, spread out as far as, as race and age um, and socioeconomic um, background. Um, so yeah, I mean, there there is more discussion about like what it means if these effects differ across those, but like, you know, you're yeah. mentioning it, we didn't really have the whole size to detect those. I, I guess I was just curious too, um, because you were talking about that it, it's not as difficult to recruit as we might imagine. And I was just wondering what pieces in terms of just like self-selection of people who are opting into these kinds of studies, um, if there are pieces that you you just sort of think of, because I know we do, like my lab does bereavement research and there are very clear characteristics of people who can take the time to do like four, seven hour, four or seven hour long visits in the middle of the day, kind of a thing when they've just lost their spouse, who might be making their, that income. And so I'm just wondering if, and y'all's line of research, if there are sort of different self-selection pieces that you sort of think of across the studies, or if you are sort of feeling like you are able to get more of a representative sample for, for this kind of research. Um, you know, that's kind of tough to say in this current world. Uh, because we actually haven't done a study in a really long time. Fair um, enough. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, there's discussion of like, should we use gift cards over cash? Because cash used to be the biggest thing. Um, mm -hmm. But there's certain ethical things to consider with cash um, and gift cards. And uh, I guess I don't, I don't really have a good answer for yeah, that yeah. one because it's been a long time since uh, Dr. Powcock has Right, and we're about to start a new study, so I guess I could speak that, to that a little bit more uh, soon. But it is something that absolutely does need to be considered because it is a long time to come in. These assessments last for four hours and studied. Um, sometimes we break them up into two assessments, so it does have some selection bias, and that's most likely because you know not everybody can do that really. Do you want to take a minute and tell us what the um, upcoming study is about a little bit? Uh, sure, yeah, I guess I'll plug in. We're all excited about future uh, directions. <laughs> right. um, so Dr. Babcock currently is looking at um, 
Well, essentially, I'll just I'll take a step back. Uh, we have couples come in and they have them engage in a conflict discussion. Uh, we find something that they both agree about is something that tends to get a little bit emotionally heated when they talk about it. Um, and we have them just talk about that conflict. While they're doing that, we do have them hooked up to uh, physiological equipment to see how their emotional, um, you know, specifically their autonomic nervous system is, is firing during that. And we are also videotaping them to get specific observed behavior that we can get that is coded later um, by research assistants. Um, and then what we do, or at least what's going to happen in this next study, is we test to see if we can apply either an emotion regulation skill or some kind of communication skill to reduce the amount of aggression that's observed during the conflict. Um, so that's what this, and, and then we have them do the conflict again to see if it changes anything. Uh, and then we always, of course, have some kind of control group in there who doesn't get any kind of uh, experimental uh, uh, treatment skill and to see if, you know, if they stay the same while the people hopefully in the treatment or skill group change in their behaviors and such. Um, so it, it does involve couples in which um, there's been at least one active or one or two acts of physical violence, or, but we are also kind of widening it to um, psychological aggression and things like that. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's what's, uh, and we are doing this because a lot of the current treatments aren't, they show a pretty weak effect size in helping individ, uh, individuals become less violent. Mm -hmm. So the idea is that we're um, trying to find specific skills that we can teach individuals to help them be less aggressive with their partners. Cause the current ones, um, just to give you an example, the effect size for the current treatments for violent men is like 0.1 or less than 0.2, which the average treatment for psychological uh, disorders um, is like 0.8. <laughs> so it's mm -hmm. relative to other treatments, the treatments for uh, individuals who perpetrate intimate partner violence is not very good. So that's why we're doing these specific skill testing is to identify like specific things that we can actually change about the current uh, uh, treatment modalities. That's fantastic. That's, yes. really, that's really encouraging. Yes. You, had, you had said earlier something about how um, couples come in and they feel, um, you know, good about coming in. And I'm, I'm thinking back to when I had my early teacher training, you know, to teach little kids, they, um, they recorded us, video recorded us, which was like cutting edge at the time. Anyway, and then we got to see ourselves teach teaching and do some self correction. And I don't, you know, obviously your study is already designed, but I wonder, I wonder if that would be, positive or negative, helpful or not. I'm just throwing that out there because I can't help myself. Because I think, you know, sometimes I'm in situations like I just wish, I wish I, I wish I could remember all those details. I wish I could remember how I reacted to something. So I'm wondering if that has a potential as a tool at some uh, some other point. This study's already designed. Just throwing it out there. Uh, I mean that's definitely been thrown out there in treatment modalities of uh, kind of monitoring and uh, coaching. Uh, mm -hmm. So it's, it's definitely 
something that I think has probably been looked into for sure. Um, whether it's been done specifically with um, in partner violence, I don't know about that though. That would be interesting. Yeah, that makes that makes sense. It's come up. You know, I'm wondering if you know we're hearing like a lot about a lot of different studies, and I'm thinking back to the work that you're doing, Debbie, or your colleagues are doing as uh, as well, especially providing all these services for people uh, um, in need. And I know that you can't once when when um, individuals, as you said, primarily women, are you know um, in their homes and they're not and they haven't left yet. It, you can't reach out very um, and directly to support them. But once they come and ask for help, can you see how the ways that um, these different dimensions that um, Andy's been talking about and that we were reading about a little bit in the study can kind of, are, can you see how maybe the work that's being done at my sister's house is to sort of build people up again so they aren't iso so isolated, that they don't feel so denigrated? I mean, is that part of the mission, part of the work? Or how does that, how does that play out? Definitely. Um, without, we refer to those, uh, we refer to clinical therapy and case management as stabilization mm -hmm. services. So uh, average tenure in the shelter, average time in the shelter is 30 to 60 days. And clearly a woman who has been isolated, prevented from working, not um, doesn't have a car, doesn't have savings, um, prevented from any participation in the family's resources, 30 to 60 days passes pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. And so the services that we provide are really just to, um, to have women be able to reflect and breathe and um, feel safe. And just that feeling of safety is really important. And until a woman feels safe, mm -hmm. she can't really an individual. We do shelter men as well. Um, it's uh, much more rare that a that a um, male victim uh, contacts us, but we have sheltered men and their children. Um, so. Um, Back to the stabilization services, it is um, required um, in the shelter that women participate in individual therapy, group sessions, and that their children, uh, parenting skills, if they have children, and um, that the children also participate in a children's program. So, yes, we begin right away. And those services are what really provide the scaffolding to move on and we are actively trying to raise funds so that when the 30 to 60 day period is over we can move women into or men um, into apartments and um, we believe and research um, uh, confirms this that when women are able to live independently um, a year later, if we can sign a lease for a year and um, a victim can stay there for a year, they are really on the road to permanent recovery. And um, the temptation to go back to an abuser is really significant, not just to be with him or her, but because of stability. 
and familiarity. And the children want to see the mom or the dad and the pet um, because we don't allow pets in the shelter. And um, believe it or not, a lot of victims are just really distraught over, well, what is going to happen to the dog? And um, he'll probably beat the dog now. So, yes, we do attempt to really saturate our victims with services um, to shore them up and allow them to find their own um, power and resiliency. What incredible and incredibly important work. And I'm just having such an emotional reaction to when you mentioned the, the pet and the dog example too. Um, and that that's something I'm, I'm just mentioning this because in, in our sort of work around bereavement and just the idea of like the, the people and potentially animals that you have build close relationships with that help you relieve your own distress. It just strikes me as sort of another form of that isolation sort of after if you have then lost that uh, that creature that was helping you cope with that circumstance that you were in right so so at that point it's like if you have sort of placed that like relief of distress onto this animal and then you're not able to have access to that animal for for very real reasons and everything else um I'm just thinking that that could feel again like a little bit of that isolation piece just sort of carrying on with you and uh, and I had never considered that in this context. And, and so I just, I, I just think the work y'all are doing is so important. And it makes me just wonder too, sort of in this context of the kind of work that Andy's doing and, and it, in more uh, couples where it hasn't turned to the point where someone has actively left, is there anything that you're sort of wishing or that your organization maybe is wishing that was studied more within these kinds of um, couples who maybe have violence going either one direction or both directions? And I'm just curious from, from your perspective where you're actually really seeing these couples um, or the, the aftermath of these couples, sort of what you wish we knew more in the lead up. Our mission statement is to end the cycle of domestic violence. So we really um, focus on education mm -hmm. and teen violence. So we're trying to just regress it a bit. And um, we do a lot of work with schools. So I, I am uh, keenly interested in um, how to alleviate, number one, how to alleviate um, the PTSD that children are experiencing and, um, and therefore break the cycle because children that witness any kind of abuse um, are much more likely to um, be perpetrators or victims in their adulthood. Um, so really children are a big focus. Um, I'd also really be interested in um, general mm, societal um, corporate uh, levels of awareness around um, partner uh, intimate partner violence and um, so, those kind those things, because I think education is really the answer um, to all of that. That is such a good answer. And what you just said just sparked something in me again, because we bereavement stuff. So I think a lot about just what bereavement leave looks like. And I think that that's another piece, what you're sort of saying of just sort of organizational and like structural awareness and um, sort of availability for a woman or a person to build that support network back up and their, their self-esteem and everything else. And 
I would imagine there is not that kind of support or like freedom or time off built into many organizations. So a lot of the time you're choosing to either work through while you are and and not choosing, but having to needing to right to make an income to work through work at the same time that you're having to completely rebuild your whole life. And what it, what an extra level of stress that is. So I think your point just there around sort of organizational support and understanding and just knowledge. I think that piece of education, um, both for children and all the way up is, is really important. <laughs> yes. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. Go ahead, Andy. Yes. Uh, I, as you were talking to, I've actually run into like this thought um, as well of like, how do we just kind of increase awareness about it? Because like I said earlier on, like it's prevalent. It's mm-hmm. it's it's within the communities. Um, it's and you know what's the most digestible way to present that to the community and to get conversations about it going uh, is something that I kind of. Uh, kind of hit a wall with a lot of times because by no means do I want to like nor uh, say that you know IPV is normal, but it is it's common actually, and it's not healthy, but it happens. Uh, but how do you how do you bring up that conversation without like an initial kind of knee jerk reaction of like oh I don't want to talk about that? And I think possibly earlier on I had that's what I was also interested in with this emotional abuse aspect of you know maybe if we just start talking about the names we call each other, or, you know, like, uh, you know, the aspects of emotional abuse that might be easier to talk about as opposed to, um, you know, intense acts of violence um, that mm-hmm. individuals might be less inclined to have an open conversation about. Um, I don't know. What do you think about making that conversations happen more, I guess, increasing that awareness? Because that's something I've been kind of stuck on. I think that's a really good idea. And I think that um, there would be avenues for such conversations. I think that um, I don't know what kind of an outreach um, you might envision, but one thing that we've thought about is really meeting with um, church leaders because there are um especially where I live, um, people are affiliated with different congregations. And so um, I think when pastors or clergy are um, know what to look for, um, they may become allies and, um, and even through their education programs. I think another, this is much more ambitious, but another um, way to approach this would be, and we're giving that some thought um, at our shelter, is to not have a hidden shelter. We've thought for years um, that, and we've been uh, an agency for over 40 years here, and our shelter is hidden. Um, there's barbed wire around it. Uh, women and uh, men don't come to the shelter. We house them separately, but women would uh, are always escorted to the shelter by law enforcement. Yeah. And um, so some of the neighbors in that neighborhood have an idea um, of what's happening there. But if the shelters were conspicuous and uh, in the middle of a city, for example, and they had the ability to keep clients safe while having walk-ins, for information or for educational um, activities, workshops. Um, If the doors were open, 
it could be more of a mainstream um, activity and, and service than the way it is right now. It's not a sexy topic, abuse, whether it's emotional or financial or physical, and um, people shy away from it. So I think you, we need to move it into um, more of a mainstream position. Uh, that is, it is sort of blowing my mind because of the model, how it's always been like that. And it really speaks to this idea that even though we're talking about individuals, they're sort of like these isolated people, but they are, you know, the nature of the problem make, is isol- is partly isolation and yet, but they're not. And if we, it's so stigmatized and we so other um, like you were saying earlier, the people who stay um, or who continue to be in these relationships um, and doing things to make them less those people and more it's our people. It's us. Yeah. Um, and that's, and that also speaks to what you were saying, Angie, before with the prevalence and the vulnerability that really almost anybody has um, if they don't have the skills and maybe the support to to um, avoid these um, difficult, um, unsafe behaviors, unhealthy behaviors. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was definitely that was definitely one of my biggest takeaways from today was just I really liked what Andy was saying and, and Debbie as well, just around sort of the need for education, but also just that idea that it can be common, but not normal. And we can know that these things are not, are not healthy, even if they are common. And I think that that, that is like, it takes you a second, right. To like get that. But, but what you're saying is so important, right. Of, of like, it is something that we need to talk about because it is so common, even if we don't want to label it as like a normal phenomenon, because we don't want that to be seen as like condoning it. Um, that just that because it is common, we need to be talking about. And I really like that distinction of common, but not normal. Mm -hmm. Well, we've, we've covered a lot of ground. We could go on, but we did promise to sort of wrap things up within a reasonable amount of time. And um, I I know that um, I've learned a lot in this conversation and I hope that each of you have as well. Um, we, if there's anything else that you want to share before we go, um, that would be great. Um, we we just appreciate this so much and your, your time and your insights are really um, so significant. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for hosting. I think it's really a very um, obviously significant, important um, topic, and has societal implications. And I'm really impressed with your work, Andy, and would love to stay in touch and um, and see uh, the results of the next study. Absolutely. Uh, no, thank you uh, again uh, for having uh, me here. And it absolutely has been a pleasure meeting you, Dr. Eastern. Uh, and I have just so many ideas uh, after, obviously, after these conversations. And uh, I'd absolutely love to keep in touch. And uh, also, I think these uh, these sessions are extremely helpful. Um, you know, we have these conversations about what this means about, like I said, this is happening in communities that we are living in right now. But uh, I guess these avenues of getting this research out here, I think is one of the most important things as far as disseminating 
um, this work. So, yeah, thanks for doing it. <laughs> yeah, we, we promise to do that. And we'll try to be creative and really share this as widely as possible, especially um, to all these different avenues that you guys were recommending. So we appreciate that. Yep. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.